And as we begin, I find myself grateful for the gospel. It's a grand display of God's power, and I'm grateful for the way it impacts and influences my life. I know without the gospel, I have gained nothing and lost everything. But with the gospel, I have gained everything and lost nothing. And so this morning, I want to continue reaching into the practical application of the gospel um, and the practical implications of that. And I want to invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you the final portion of the message I have called the power in him living in the power of the gospel. Um, And I ask those of you who are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3 and going through verse 8, it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard and came to truly appreciate God's grace. Verse 7, you learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. You may be seated. Where there is no gospel, there is no love. God is the author and giver of love, and his gospel is a supreme example of that, and supreme example of what love is. God defines it, God motivates it, and God influences it. Therefore, where God is not allowed, love cannot be active. Few things have been culturally appropriated as much as the concept of love. It has been commandeered, it has been redefined, and then it has been leveraged as an accusation against those people who don't accept the new explanation, the new definition, because that is considered unloving. In an article published just two days ago in Desiring God, Marshall Segal writes, it is strangely possible that love is both pervasive and yet endangered in our day. I think he's right on that, that yes, love is a pervasive aspect of our culture preached here and there and continually, but it is endangered because we don't know what true love is. He goes further and says, the label is certainly plastered like bright yellow tape across anything and everything around us, or perhaps more accurately, Society has made love a big beige wall, drained of the definition or vibrancy it once had, so that anyone can decorate it however he or she likes. Love has come to mean whatever anyone says it means, and to suggest otherwise, of course, is unloving. The new interpretation of love includes characteristics such as acceptance and approval, so that it now means sanctioning behavior, even if the outcome is contrary to what we would say is loving. The fruit of the world's love is the exact opposite of what love is. 
while claiming to be an action of love, their concept sows division and sows discord and disarray. In the, na- in the same way that we examine false teachers by their fruit, I would say we can identify false love by its fruit as well. Absent in any of these modern definitions of love are the attribution and the action. And what I mean by that is that because God is love, as we read this morning in our scripture reading, it must always be attributed to him. Love apart from God isn't love. It can only be lust. Desiring to be something more than it is and hoping for something that it cannot have. It also must come with action. Because love always pushes a person or always expects people to give all of themselves to all of others. In nearly every definition in the Christian community, what you'll find is the way they define it is some variation that includes the clarification that love is not emotion. Love is not a feeling. Love is not arbitrary. But love also does not lack volition. And love does not lack action. Instead, love is considered a willful act by which a person gives himself or herself. According to Jay Adams, love is giving, giving of oneself to another. It is not getting, as the world says today. It is not feeling and desire. It is not something over which no one has no control. He goes on, it is something that we do for another. No one loves in abstract. Love is an attitude that issues forth in something that actually tangibly happens. Ultimately, love is a reaction to God's love for us, resulting in the willful surrender of our own priorities for the sake of another, and it's proven by the action taken on behalf of others. In this final aspect of our series on the power of God's gospel, We see Colossae as a church that is commended for its love. It becomes an example for believers. But to love, we must know what love is. And so as we draw to the end of our text, I want you to note finally, as we looked at the gospel having the power to impart, the power to impact, and the power to influence, I want to now say that the gospel has the power to incite Verse 8, Paul commends the church of Colossae, saying, And he, Epaphras, has told us about your love in the Spirit. The the power of the gospel is proven by its ability to incite love. An incredible sight to behold is the sight of God's love overcoming the world's evil. When division and strife and hatred mark the attitude of people, God's love overcomes with understanding and compassion and forgiveness. The love of God is unique and exceptional. It bridges the gap of existence so that when individuals or families who come from seemingly way different backgrounds and lifestyles and interests, the love of God generates fellowship between them. It traverses the deepest of trials. So that when all others have abandoned hope, the love of God causes people to run to those people 
to care for them while the world runs away. It also spans the greatest chasm of offense. So that while all others may think it impossible, the love of God is able to bring reconciliation. Only the genuine love of God is able to accomplish what the counterfeit love of the world cannot accomplish. Because it does what nothing else can do. His love is exceptional and unique. The love of God is exceptional because the God of love is exceptional. Not only is the church in Colossae proof of the gospel's power to incite love, as we read in our text, but it, it must be a remarkable or an exceptional attribute of this particular church. Of the 95 verses that make up the book of Colossians, we've only covered eight of them. That means we've barely covered 8% of the book, and yet already twice Paul has commended the Colossians for their love. In a span of mere eight verses, Paul has lauded them for their love. This is the second time he does so. Here in verse 8, he notes that Epaphras has told Paul about their love in the Spirit. But in verse 4, just a few verses prior, he commends them for their testimony of love, which no doubt probably reached him from Epaphras as well. It has left so much of an impression that Paul has mentioned it twice here, just in his introductory remarks. There is something very special then about the love of this church. It's not their own. Each time that Paul commends them for their love, it always is connected and is the result of God's work. The character of love is not the result of their own work, but it is the effect of God working through them. In verse 4, it says their love is the result of their hope in heaven. And here it says love is the result of God's spirit. This is no surprise. Our scripture reading this morning from 1 John 4, 7 through 21 tells us in verse 8 that God is love. At our Wednesday night study, we made the distinction that, that God does not have love. He is not like a pie that can be divided into pieces and one piece is love and another piece is mercy and another piece is judgment and so on and so on. So that at any point you could just take a piece of that pie out from God. He does not have love. God is love. If he merely had love, it would mean it could be taken away. But God is love. And so therefore, all that God does and all that God is, is influenced by his love. It contains a piece of that love as well. When God grants mercy, <clears throat> that's an expression of his love. When God disciplines, that is also an expression of his love. The gospel then is not only an expression of the love of God, it influences people with his love, causing them to love others as well. If God is love, then God also defines love. And we cannot understand what love is unless we first understand God. <coughs> Consider then how our God defines love. First, I would say love is defined by a savior. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 4. So just four verses prior to our text this morning. It says, love comes from their hope in heaven. That hope is not attainable by their own works or by the works of any person. No individual has the capacity to obtain hope on his or her own merit. Instead, for any person to lay claim to hope, it requires the work of another. It requires the work of a savior. Just after John writes that God is love in 1 John 4, 8, he says then in verse 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The manifestation of God through Christ is itself just a show of God's love. God was never under any obligation to reveal himself to humanity, let alone to reveal himself physically. Yet that is what he does through Christ. The invisible God made visible. <coughs> what a difference it would be if God chose not to reveal himself through Christ. What knowledge would we lack? What opportunities would we miss? What relationships would we not have? Specifically, what relationship with God would we not have? The gift of Christ is a gift of God's love. Notice also, though, that love is not the result of our affection for God, but it's the result of God's affection for us. Looking at 1 John verse 10, it says, or we see that love is not something that we can conjure up on ourselves. We cannot force ourselves to love another. Instead, the love that we may have is simply a result of the love we receive from God. In this is love, it says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. What is the love that we receive? Colossians would tell you it's the hope laid up in heaven. Here, John says it's the Son who acted as a propitiation for our sins. To understand the intensity of love, or of this love, we must understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. To experience the love of God, we must first see the holiness of God. The God we call upon is holy. He is perfect. He is without blemish. Against the brilliance of his purity, all other things look tinted and stained. Then we look upon our own sinfulness. The light of God is going to expose every dark place in our heart, every shadow in our mind. We will see our need for God, not merely at the moment of salvation, but on a moment-by-moment -moment basis as we see our depravity and our need for a Savior. Only then, only when we see the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, only then can we see who God is and recognize the dramatic nature of this love that's expressed through his Son, Jesus Christ. If we are too consumed by our self-love, we will never be consumed by his love. 
at that moment we see that we're unsuitable, we're unworthy, we're unable to receive God's love. But that's the beauty of the gospel message. It rescues us when we cannot rescue ourselves. That right there is the power of God's message in itself. This is the breathtaking nature of God's love. The love of God is most clearly displayed through the Son of God. The Savior defines, then, the nature of love. If we don't understand the gospel, we don't understand God's love for us. And if we don't understand God's love for us, we cannot love another. Second, I would tell you love is defined by sacrifice. God's love is not just seen through the Savior, but it's his sacrifice that makes Christ the Savior. John writes in verse 10, as we just read, he became a propitiation for our sins. But then if you go on to verse 11 in 1 John, it says, Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. Not only did God reveal himself and his love through Christ, but he also gave us an example of love through the sacrifice of Christ. Most of you can recount John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But read with that 1 John 3.16, which then states, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. How foretelling it was for Christ when he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. <clears throat> Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Not much later after making that statement, Christ's life would be required of him, laid down for those that he would call friend. And in doing so, not only did he show his love as a savior, but it became the example of love through sacrifice. Who was the sacrifice for? No, I'm not looking to start a debate here and say, did he die for everyone or did he just die for the elect or those that, that believe on him? That's not my intention. I want to know what is the character of the people he died for. Examining myself in the mirror of God's word, I read that I am a blasphemer, I am a liar, I am a thief, adulterer, and murderer. And the list goes on and on. The sacrifice of Christ was for people who were just like me. He died for those who would be described as the worst of society. Those who we would say deserved love the very least. And yet they are the ones who received it. The sacrifice of Christ on my behalf was never dependent upon who I was, but on who Christ was. Such a truth has a grand implication then for the definition of love. And an implication that really is countercultural. It goes against what the world would say is love. Because while the world says, my love for you is dependent upon your love for me, that's not the example we see here from Christ. 
Our love for others does not depend on what we think about others. Our love for others depends on what we think about God. To value God is to value people. To love God is to love people then. Frequently it comes with sacrifice. I suspect very few of us would ever be called upon to lose our physical life as an act of love. But we often sacrifice time, money, pride, energy, emotion. Those are just a few ways in which we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of loving others. In the words of Augustine, what does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has feet to hasten the poor and needy. It has the eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. Third, I would say love is also defined by the spirit. Paul does not commend the church in Colossae for its own love but for their love in the Spirit, it says in 1 Colossians 1.8. 1 John 4.13, continuing on in that text, says, This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his Spirit. And then it goes on to say we remain in him if we love. Genuine love is not the result of our own disposition. Genuine love is the result of the Spirit's position. If God is love, then love must come from God, so we cannot exist apart from him or his spirit if we're going to be able to give love to others. Genuine love reveals genuine disciples. Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What an intimidating statement that is. Because not only does Christ command them to love others, but he says that that love will be the mark of a true disciple. How can that be? How can Christ be so certain that those who are his disciples indeed will love others? Because as he departs this physical earth, what does he impart to his believers? The Spirit. That's how Christ can be so certain. 2 Timothy 1.7 indicates that God has given us the spirit of love. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, among other things. Love does not come from our own power or our own motivation. It comes from the work of the Spirit in our lives. Therefore, if we're existing apart from the Spirit, we're existing apart from love. The love coming from our lives is simply a consequence of living in the Spirit. If you aren't walking by God's Spirit, you aren't displaying God's love. The power of the gospel is displayed in its ability to instigate love. Through the gospel, God fills our lives with his love. He imparts his love by revealing himself to us. He imparts his love by giving his son to us. He imparts his love by offering his son as a propitiation for us. 
and he parts his love by imparting his spirit to us. Each time God fills us more with his love until we're finally overflowing with that love. And it's from that overflow then that we can love others. When we say we love because he first loved us, as we read, it's because we cannot love until he has loved us. Apart from God, we don't have the capacity to love others. We only have the capacity to love ourselves. That's the difference between those who follow God and those who do not. Those who have received the gospel have the capacity to love others, while those who do not receive the gospel only have the capacity to love themselves. This is why the gospel has the power to incite love. By receiving it, we have prepared ourselves to love others. That's the pattern we see in 1 Peter 1.22. It's written, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. A pure heart only comes from the Spirit's work. Therefore, love only comes from the Spirit's work. If we're struggling to love others, we only need to remember God's love for us. The love of God only, not only compels us to love one another, but it goes even further. Allow me to share with you again our call to worship this morning. From Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, the author writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Instead of asking ourselves, do I love others, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do I stir up others for love and good works? What describes us more? By our love, are we causing others to love? Or by our lack of love, are we causing others to stumble in their own good works and their own love? If we are to love others, we must first love God because he first loved us. Love is defined by a savior. It's not the result of our affection for God, but the result of his affection for us. Love is defined by a sacrifice. Sacrifice is not determined by what I think about others, but what I think about God. And finally, love is defined by the Spirit. It is not the result of our disposition of our life. It is the result of the Spirit's position in our life. The gospel has a power to incite. By imparting the Spirit, the gospel provokes believers to love one another. That's not the only aspect of the gospel's power that we've seen in these last few weeks. We saw also that the gospel has a power to impart. It imparts God's truth, and God's truth causes a transformation in a person's life by imparting hope, as the text says, causing that person to find confidence not in the world, not in this world, but in the next, in heaven. The gospel also has the power to impact, according to First Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. 
Verse 6 assures us that the gospel is bearing fruit, and it is bearing fruit all over the world. It's not dormant, but it's powerfully transforming lives on an ongoing basis. And the gospel has the power to influence. As we talked about last week in verse 7, with the example of Epaphras, it causes people to turn away from their former way of life and give up everything they have in order to serve God. What an awesome display of God, of who God is, that the gospel offers us. It shows us God's ability to transform lives by the proclamation of his word and his faithfulness to do so. No methodology, no ideology has the capacity to do what the gospel does. By his word, God created the heavens and the earth. By his word, Christ defeated Satan. And by his word, the spirit convicts. It's not more paths to God. It's not more secular psychology. It's not more positive thinking. It's the gospel that has the power to change lives. We don't need more influence from the positivity from the public. From the public, We need more influence from the gospel of God. Let's pray. Father God, indeed, your gospel is powerful. It is able to do things that we cannot do. And Lord, we see it working mightily in our own lives, in the lives of those around us and throughout the world. Even in those moments when we despair and, and don't understand what's taking place and why, why are things going on the way they are, Lord, we have confidence that your gospel is at work, that it has the power to impart your truth, to impart hope. It has the power to influence people, and it has the power to incite love, Lord. Father, may this gospel be real and relevant to us. May we live in it. May we see your power at work because we're living in the power of the gospel. Father, we give you praise that you've called us to you, that you've given us even the opportunity to live out a life in this gospel, Lord. And so, Father, may that be our conviction. May we look ahead to a future with you because we believed in the gospel and seen it powerfully work in our own lives. And so, Father, we just commit ourselves to you, grateful for who you are, thankful for all that you do. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.